All right. You can be opening up your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to be getting into chapter 4 today. And if you've been with us for the last several weeks, you know we've been studying the first three chapters of Ephesians, looking into what Paul has to deal with here as he's writing this letter to the church in Ephesus. And he's dealt with uh, a doctrine that we've talked about several times, right? Uh, Talking about, particularly in chapter 1, about our spiritual possessions, the rich blessings or possessions that we have in Jesus Christ. And he's constantly reiterating that we are in Christ, or they are in Christ, we are in Christ. And we have a rich uh, possession in that, rich blessings that we have that we may not even realize and we should be taking advantage of it and then in the second and third chapter he talks about the spiritual position that we have in christ that we are set apart from the world we are no longer of the world but we are children of god adopted sons of god and that includes the jews that believe but not only the jews that believe but also the gentiles and as we've talked about the last couple weeks he goes on to make the make uh make the point that the Gentiles are included in that just as much as the, Jew, the Jews are. He's speaking to those in Ephesus. Most likely, most of those folks were Gentiles. There might have been a few Jews there too. But he's telling them, you guys are just as much an heir of the inheritance that's to come as the Jews were because of the work that Christ did on the cross. And what's a wonderful blessing, a wonderful promise that they have. Well, in the next three, last three chapters of Ephesians, he's going to now deal more or focus more on their duty, what they need to be doing, what they need to be about because of these rich blessings, because of the position they have in Christ, the position that we have in Christ, right? Position as we, as children of God. And he's going to focus on that duty. He's going to look at the responsibilities that are ours because of these blessings and we enjoy that he's described there in the first three chapters. And of all these blessings that he's described, one upon which uh, Paul elaborates is unity, or that unity that we have in Christ by virtue of that work that he did on the cross, right? He has uh, reconciled both Jew and Gentile to God in one body, one body, together as children of God, right? So, it's not, it, shouldn't be, it shouldn't be a surprise to us that the first duty that Paul exhorts us to is to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. All right? Christ attained this unity by his work on the cross, and our task as Christians, as part of that kingdom, as part of that one body, part of the temple, the holy temple that's being built up in us, is to keep that unity that he he attained, that he attained through that work on the cross. So, this is a charge that he's giving to those in Ephesus to walk worthy of this calling with which they were called. Let's read the first few verses there of chapter 4 in a, in a letter to, the, to Ephesians. Beginning of verse 1, he says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, 
one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. All right, so there we see the first six verses. He's telling them, keep this unity, keep this bond of peace. You are to walk according to the calling that you have been called. How are you to do it? Well, first of all, he says, in lowliness. This word means having an humble opinion of yourself. You're not puffed up. You're humble. You are grateful because of what Christ did for you on the cross. Turn over to uh, Philippians 2, and let's see what Paul said in the Philippian letter about being humble or lowly or having that attitude of lowliness. Philippians 2, uh, and let's just begin in verse 1. And these are verses that you should, you should probably keep, keep close to your heart because these are very good verses. Verse 1, Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Sounds kind of like Ephesians 4, doesn't it? Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Hmm. Let each, of you look, let each of you look out not only for his own interest, but also for the interests of others. Oh, so we're supposed to be lowly. We're not supposed to be puffed up. We're not supposed to be conceited. We're supposed to be looking out for each other. Did you know that? As Christians, as children of God? Well, wait a minute. Are you members of a family? Do you have parents or, or brothers and sisters? Do you have children? Do you look out for them? Do sometimes you put them ahead of your, their interests ahead of your own interests? That's what we're talking about here. We are one in the family. We are a family of God, of children, adopted sons of God. And just like in our own physical, biological families, or not necessarily biological, our families, we are to look out for each other. We're a family. And sometimes families bicker, don't they? They get a little upset with each other. And that's what Paul's trying to make the point here. Have some lowliness about you. Have some humility. You don't need to be putting yourself above others. That lowliness that comes, that helps us get to that unity. Without this virtue, Members in the body begin trying to be what? The head, right? You know, you all heard the, the old saying, there's too many chiefs trying to run the fort. You kind of get that sensibility, right? You can't have people that want to just be the head. I want to run things. I'm the guy in charge. Now we have elders here who make decisions about the, the, the congregation here who try to see, uh, do what's right for this congregation, help it to grow, help the members here, but they're not puffed up. They're not above anybody else. They're simply men trying to live a life like Christ. And if anything else, the elders should be the most humble of everyone here because they have a job to do. They have a great responsibility that's been given to them, perhaps, that others don't have. 
And so there should be a great lowliness, even among them, because they're not the head. Jesus Christ is the head. And that uh, pedestal is reserved for him. He did the work on the cross. He attained the unity. We are to be lowly and humble and respectful of that. Gentleness, that's another word that can be translated in a, in a sense of being lowly or humble, right? Uh, having mildness, being meek. It's not a quality of a weakness necessarily, but being gentle. We know that Moses was called a, 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 a meek man in Numbers 12, right? But that didn't mean he wasn't capable of being strong and bold. When that was required, he could do that, right? He went before the great Pharaoh. He had to have his help. You know, he wasn't, wasn't real excited about it at first. But he did that. He was able to be strong, be bold, yet gentle. We know that from the scripture. Jesus, Matthew 11 says, was meek and holy, low, meek and lowly in heart. Yet, just, Brother Kyle just had a lesson last Wednesday about when he came into Jerusalem and he went into the temple and did something. You remember what that was about? Cleansed it. He got a little fired up, didn't he? He was a little bold. He showed some strength. <clears throat> not to be mean, not to be aggressive or trying to lord it over anybody, but he stood up for what was right. He stood up for the truth. He was bold, meek. That's what meekness is all about. We're to be gentle, not to be striving to be the one in charge, not to be striving to be the guy that's at head of everything, but humble, lowly, gentle, being ready to put others ahead of ourselves in all that we do. Thus, it's being gentle even when the potential for being harsh uh, even, even when the picture part, but gentleness is more conducive to main, even when the, so we have a potential for being harsh, is what I'm trying to say there. Right? Generally speaking, that's human nature. We want to be number one. Right? We hear that all the time. Been watching March Madness, that's what you're thinking about. That team wants to be number one. Everybody wants to be number one, right? The best. But in the church, we are elevated by the fact that we lower ourselves. Right? Remember when the disciples said, you know, when the, uh, James and John's mother asked who would be first in the kingdom? And he said, it's not about being first. It's about being a servant. It's about being the guy that's washing the other's feet. And he showed them that, right? He showed them that. So we're, all, we're to be gentle, we're to be humble and long-suffering. The idea is the patience, forbearance. When the body consists of members who are not perfect, and I would say that's us, and often in sin against each other, that the maintaining of unity is just not possible. If you've got a lot of bickering going on, you've got a lot of bad feelings with each other, it's kind of hard to stay unified, isn't it? And probably some of you have been part of a church at some point in your life that that was going on. Perhaps you even saw a split. And that wasn't good, I'm sure. I've never been part of that. But I've heard it can be nasty. And you'll have some folks that simply don't like get mad and don't like the way things are done, and they got to go. They can't stand to be there, right? That long-suffering, that idea, that attitude that, yeah, people are going to make mistakes. People are going to probably make me angry or do something that makes me mad, but I had to be patient with them. They're children of God, just like I am. 
There's a long-sufferingness that we need to have. Bearing with one another in love. Similar long-suffering, bearing means to sustain that lowliness, that patience. What makes these possible is that virtue of love. All right? As Paul wrote in his great love chapter, love suffers long and is not provoked. You ever been quick to be provoked? You ever been quick to anger? You ever been done wrong and you just lashed right out somebody? Yeah, I've done that. In the brotherhood, in the family of God, we are to be long-suffering. We are to be patient. We are not to be quickly provoked. How do we do that? Through love. Love for one another. Even though you may not know each other that well, and perhaps need to know each other better, you should have love for one another because each and every person in the faith, in the church, has been set apart by God for good work. You're together in this. That's the unity part, right? The virtue of love is that tie that binds. We read that in Colossians 3. And displaying this virtue does not come naturally or easy, nor does maintaining unity. I mean, the first thing you want to do when somebody does you wrong is you don't want to be around them anymore, right? You're ready to split. Right? Not so easy in your marriage, though. Right? And when you get mad at your spouse, you can't just split. Same thing in your families. When you get mad at somebody in your family, you can't just split. Take off. I guess you can, but you shouldn't. And that's because you have that love for each other. A love that's going to be there even when you don't like each other. And that's going to happen. That's going to happen. Well, these are all virtues that we need to have and that to have unity, virtues that we need to have in the kingdom, virtues that we need to continue to work on because it doesn't come natural, right? And we have to have that love for each other. We have to be continually doing diligence to display all these virtues. Display the love that we have for each other and to keep that unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, as we read there in verse 3. Well, what's the basis for all this unity? We just read there, starting about verse 4, that there are several things that Paul talks about here. We are one in. We are unified in. First of all, it's the body. We've been talking about that, right? Paul speaks of the church in the universal sense, right? The body of saved believers, universal, where we have several congregations, right? Like here and others, but who are all part of that one body of Christ, right? That one unified faith of believe, one group of believers. There may be many local churches, but there's only one universal body. One Spirit, the Holy Spirit, who has already been described in this letter as the Holy Spirit of promise in chapter 1, the uh, guarantee of our inheritance in chapter 1, by whom both Gentile, um, Jew and Gentile have access to the Father. We've just been talking about that the last couple of weeks, how Paul wanted to emphasize that. Uh, that one Spirit in whom God inhabits those who are being built up as a holy temple. Remember? Spirit dwelling in us, we are now the holy temple of God. 
We are all one body, one temple in that respect, by whom the mystery of Christ was revealed to the apostles and the prophets at the beginning, and through whom God strengthens with might the inner man. Remember, we all talked about that. And as the one whose unity is to be maintained in the bond of peace. Here we read that in verse 3. So we have one spirit, one Holy Spirit. And then we have one hope of your calling. And what exactly is Paul meaning by that one hope of your calling? Of course, he's already said, you need to be figuring out what your calling is, what you're supposed to be doing. And we're going to expand on that in a second. But he says there's that one hope of your calling, that unified hope. Turn over to Romans chapter 8, and let's see if we can kind of see what he's talking about there exactly. He has a few verses in other letters that he, uh, he mentions about that. But let's turn to Romans chapter 8 and uh, verse 22. Actually, let's go back to verse 18 because it kind of is all part of the context. Romans 8, 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. So the stuff we're going through right now is just temporary. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope, because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. Not only that, but we also who have the first fruits of the Spirit, in other words, they got the mystery, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. For we were saved in this hope, but hope that is seen is not hope, for why does one still hope for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. We've been called through that one hope to be set apart, to be knowing the mystery, because we are going to be resurrected in the incorruptible body. Whatever that is, we will be with him eternally. So that's what Paul is talking about here. That one hope of your calling, that hope, that faith, that knowledge that you're going to be raised again, just like Jesus Christ. <clears throat> that includes things like salvation. Got to be saved, right? Got to believe. And you got to obey his commands. You got to live a life like Christ faithfully. And then that eternal life that we read about all through the scripture. And then there's the one Lord. Who does this refer to? The one Lord, right? Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Let's see what it says there. I think this will explain it very well. 1 Corinthians chapter 8. <clears throat> and uh, let's go to verse 5. He says, <clears throat> 1 Corinthians 8 verse 5, For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, and by the way, this is the context of uh, eating meat, sacrificed idols, so he's talking about other gods than, than the God. He says, for even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, of whom all 
whom, of whom are all things, and we, for, and we for him, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things, and through whom we live. So he's talking there that, you know, they, there are other pagan gods, a lot of other gods. We have one God, one Father, one Lord. Of course, that Lord is Jesus Christ. We are to follow him, to obey, try to be like him, keep the faith until that great day. And by the way, we have that one faith. This is the body of truth, the faith which Jude says was once for all delivered to the saints. We know that through his word. We know what to believe. We have that faith, that one faith together as his children, right? It is the pattern of sound words in the pages of the New Testament which contains all that Christians must believe. And then... We also have the one baptism. Hmm. Interesting that he would even have to say this, right? But it, perhaps something that we need to know, right? Maybe that men mean as much to them in the first century as it does to us. This is the baptism commanded by Jesus in Matthew 28. Going to all the world. What? Going to all the world. Making disciples of every nation. Teaching them. Baptizing them. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Preached and commanded by the apostles, right? Acts 2.38, Mark 16, 15 and 16. By which those who submitted to baptism were added to the Lord's church, the Lord's one body, right? The baptism in which a penitent believer is immersed in water for their mission of sins, and thus receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Today you'll hear a lot of things, particularly in Christendom, right? Dominational places, that there's two baptisms, really. There's water baptism and there's Holy Spirit baptism, right? If you read the scriptures carefully, you can see that that's not the case at this point, right? Holy Spirit baptism was really only, we only see it in two places, right? At the Pentecost, day of Pentecost, when it came upon the apostles, and at the baptism, at the, at the conversion of Cornelius. And it was done then to show Peter and the Jews that the gospel was for the Gentiles. That's why it was done. He still had to be baptized. If you go read Acts 10 and 11, Peter says, who was I to keep him from being baptized at this point, once this happened, once he saw this? So we have this one baptism, this baptism in water, where believers are immersed. And then we have the one God and Father, which we just talked about, the Father who together with the Son and the Holy Spirit make up that Godhead. And Paul emphasizes both the personality of the Father. He's the Father of all. All the adopted sons of God, right? He is our Father. And when we pray, that's how we should pray to Him. He, he is our Father. We should be talking to God like He is our Father, just like we would our biological Father. Not disrespectfully, as I'm sure none of you ever did. I know I didn't. But as children of God, that's how we are to see him, the one God and Father. His transcendence and omnipresence, he's above all, through all, and in you all through that spirit. So these seven ones constitute that unity of the spirit that we're talking about here, all right? Paul is emphasizing that we are unified in the spirit and all the ones he expands on 
to show that point. And that's good for us today. We can understand a lot of stuff simply by reading those few verses. To, uh, to uh, help us in the efforts of keeping this union of the Spirit, though, he's also given the church a few other things. And let's read on in chapter 4 and see what we're talking about there. Beginning in verse 7, he says, But to each one of us grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, he says, When he ascended on high, he led captivity, captivity captive and gave gifts to men. When did he do that? When he ascended. Now this, he ascended. What does it mean that he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers. For the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of faith, and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a perfect man to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. That we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men and cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. But speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ, from whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies according to the effective working by which every part does its share causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. So, we are to keep this unity of the Spirit in a bond of peace. And how are we to do this? Well, we've been given gifts. Did you know that? Did you know that Christ has given us gifts as adopted sons of God? The source of these gifts, of course, they came straight from Christ, straight from His grace. As prophesied, they were given after Christ ascended into heaven. Now, I want to make a distinction here. Ask this question. Would you call these miraculous or spiritual gifts? Interesting question, right? Turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and let's read what he has to say over there just to make a distinction here. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, beginning in verse 1, I want to read a few things about spiritual gifts. And these are what I would call spiritual or miraculous gifts that we're given. Beginning in verse 1, he says, Now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I do not want you to be ignorant. You know that you were Gentiles, carried away to these dumb idols, however you were led, Therefore I make known to you that no one speaking of the Spirit of God calls Jesus accursed, and no one can say that Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. There are diversities of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are differences of ministries, but the same Lord. And there are diversities of activities, but it is the same God who works all in all. But the manifestation of the Spirit is given to each one for the profit of all. For to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit, to another the word of knowledge through the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by the same Spirit, to another working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another discerning of spirits, to another different kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. But one in the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually as he wills. Here, Paul is talking about miraculous gifts that they had in the first century, and they are given by that one Spirit that we're talking about here in Ephesians, unified 
in one spirit. And he's telling them that you don't need to be um, being puffed up about this. You don't need to be using these gifts for, to show who you're greater than somebody else. You need to be using these gifts for the greater good of all so that all can understand and know. That's why you see, he says, there, some are given the, the uh, ability to speak in tongues. Others are given the ability to interpret the tongues. It was all in order. It was not chaotic. It was to be done for the benefit of all. But that's a little bit different than what we read here in Ephesians 4, right? These are probably not, we wouldn't call these, no, probably, you wouldn't call these miraculous gifts, right? These are, you might even say these are more like functions that we have. They are gifts given to people who are in the body. <coughs> and they're spiritual gifts that we need to use. We need to put into practice. <coughs> if they're in a function, and, and there is some Greek wording here that's a little different. It, in, in Ephesians, he uses the words Dorius or Damata instead of Charismata. And you can see how Charismata would be along the lines of spiritual gifts. You know, Charismatics are the Pentecostal denomination. You know, that they're Charismatic. They might say because they get the Spirit and they can speak in tongues and so forth. He is using different words here in verses 7 and 8. So you that kind of suggests that Paul has in mind we're talking more about functions here, not, not miraculous gifts that are given uh, through the Spirit. But there are functions that Christ gave some to be. Apostles, those who are to be eyewitnesses of the resurrection. If you go back to Acts chapter 1, beginning in verse 15, he talks about how those who've been here from the beginning, those were the apostles. But this was temporary. The apostles died out. After that, we didn't have the apostles anymore. We had no eyewitnesses anymore. We had their accounts that were left for us, but we don't have that anymore. Also, prophets, these were inspired men and women who had those gifts, perhaps that were spiritual, spiritual miraculous gifts, who were able to give revelation, but that, again, was a foundational role that was temporary, not something that we still have today. And then it says he's given some to be evangelists. Literally, bearers of good news, right? So those who have gone out to individuals like Philip, who we read about in Acts, going out and proclaiming the gospel of Christ publicly and privately. Of course, we know how Philip was led by the Spirit to speak to the Ethiopian eunuch. The Ethiopian eunuch believed, was baptized, went into the water and back out of the water, and went on his way rejoicing. We have evangelists. Some are given to be evangelists. I guess you could say Brother Kyle is an evangelist, right? But really, anybody who leads somebody to Christ is an evangelist. So you can kind of see that's a function that more than one person can have. It's something that we should be thinking about and doing. He gave some to be pastors and teachers. <clears throat> this is the only place we see pastors used. And perhaps he's putting these together because he doesn't say some pastors and some teachers. Perhaps that's being used together. But it can be said that Paul is intending these terms to describe one function, whatever that, uh, whatever that is. But the role of pastor certainly requires a function of teaching. Pastor, in case you don't know, would be the same as a elder or a what you might call a bishop. Those are not terms we use normally around here, but that's what we're talking about here. Someone who is a shepherd uh, leads the flock, is able to teach, right? has that function of leading a local congregation. We have several elders here. 
Uh, we can be called pastors. I prefer to be called uh, bishop. But, you know, that's just me. But, no, I'm just kidding. Somebody asked me when I first became an elder, I said, he said, what do, you, what do we call you, elder? I said, I prefer po, po I mean, I mean uh, bishop, but anyway. No, I'm just joking, but we are no greater than anybody else. We are just men, but we have a function, right? We have a function that has been given from Jesus Christ. Interesting how that came from him. We don't think about that very often, do we? You know, everybody here has something they need to be doing, serving in some way. Some we have assigned roles, others we don't. But anyone can be an evangelist with a friend, right? Anyone can talk to a friend about Jesus Christ. Anyone can teach a little bit. You don't have to be a great scholar of the scriptures to be a teacher, right? We do appoint elders, and there are qualifications of elders that we see in the scripture, and we try to follow that as our guideline. And he, and he doesn't even mention here deacons, right? And, you know, you can say, well... Of course, that's because he's not going to talk about everything when he's writing the letter, right? But there are roles we all are given, functions we are given to help the church, the one body, keep that unity of spirit in the bond of peace. This term pastor is found only here, like I said, you could interchange it with elders, presbyters, bishops, overseers, but it's all the same thing. And... All these things have the purpose of unity, right? To prepare members of the body for service. Why do you need teachers? Well, we need to equip everyone for service, for the work of ministry. As I said, anybody can be an evangelist to a friend. But you need to know how to defend your faith, right? You need to know scripture enough that you can talk to someone about who is this Jesus Christ? What is he all about? Why do I live the way I do? And be able to go to places in the Word and show that. That's part of this. That's why we're doing this. That's why we, one of the reasons we come together on Sunday. First day of the week. To worship, but also to study, to equip ourselves for service. To build up the members of the body. To edify the body of Christ. In doing so, in coming together, we encourage each other. We edify each other. We are unified. We have that love for each other. And he talks about there in verse 14, so that we're not like children, tossed to and fro by every doctrine that comes along. We're not easily deceived by cunning and false teachers or resources. And there's false doctrine everywhere, right? And also, through this, we're able to speak the truth in love and edify each other in love. And the world doesn't like that, right? There's a lot of things that we talk about here that the world thinks is hateful, right? But we know where we're going. We know we have an eternal reward, and we need to help each other maintain that, get that, keep that faith. And now sometimes you've got to do a little rebuking, right? Sometimes you've got to talk to someone and say, hey, if you stay on that path, I don't know. Judgment's going to come, right? And that's part of what we do here. The world doesn't like that. They think that's hateful. So, all this to say, if we can just display these attitudes that are necessary for unity, 
the attitudes that he talked about in the first part of chapter 4 here. Hold fast to that basis for our unity through the seven ones. We are one body, one faith. We have one spirit, one baptism, all those things. And utilize these gifts that Christ has given us. Surely we can keep the unity of the faith and the bond of peace. I think this congregation is blessed that way. I really do. We have a lot of folks who are willing to serve in any way they can. Maybe not to teach or maybe not to uh, get up and preach or sing, lead singing or whatever, but they're willing to do something. And I think for the most part, this congregation is very good about that. I know there are other congregations that are not, and they tend to dwindle, don't they? I'm sure you've heard of that happen. I have. I've seen and heard of churches that kind of were dissolved because they couldn't get anybody to do anything. Everybody was kind of sitting their way, just sitting there in the pew. But I don't believe that's the way it is here. And I would encourage each and every one of you, and if you don't have something you're doing right now, find out what you need to do. You can come to any of the elders, you can come to any of the teachers, any of the deacons, and we'll find something for you to do. There's plenty to do in this congregation, in the kingdom of heaven. So if you're not doing it now, get busy. It's time to get busy. All right, I'll stop preaching. And today is as good a day as any if you're not a Christian to become a child of God. All right, time is up. Thanks for being here.